Hello and welcome. Dodging the television debates and manifesto launches and much about the royal family, Inside Briefing is back for another week of getting beyond the politics and making sense of it all. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. We've had the first round of combat with parties flinging promises of billions at each other to see who does the most damage. Signs so far are that voters are sceptical that party leaders will deliver much of it. And we've still got three weeks to go. This week, we want to get past the skirmishing to see what the election and the last few extraordinary years mean for our constitution, famously not codified or written down all in one document, but still the underpinning of how the country works. We're also going to take a closer look at one of the great temptations that seems to lead so many new prime ministers down dangerous paths. No, not the horde of people queuing up to say, yes, prime minister, but the creation of brand new government departments. Is that a chance to make a real change, a meaningless fiddling with the Lego bricks of Whitehall, or an expensive distraction? And we'll speak to Gus O'Donnell, the former Cabinet Secretary, about what it's like to be the country's most senior civil servant in the middle of a general election campaign. Joining me on today's podcast is the IFG's constitution expert, Kath Haddon. Kath, hi. Hi. Is it true you bagged yourself yet another tour of Downing Street this week? I did, yes. Not my first time going to Downing Street, but I got the chance to go on an excellent full tour by somebody in Downing Street, which meant I could see whether or not my historical knowledge was better than theirs. Back to is our always popular senior researcher, Maddie Timont-Jack. Maddie, it's been reported that Boris Johnson, if he wins the election, would hold a vote in Parliament on Brexit on December 23rd. How's your Christmas shaping up? Yeah, I mean, luckily I was already planning to be in London for Christmas, um, <laughs> but I'm really hoping that 23rd is the last date and it's not a Christmas Eve vote. You weren't planning to be in London in Parliament on that? No, definitely not. And we have a special guest this week. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast David Allen Green, who's a solicitor at preschool, contributing editor of the FT, commentator on all things to do with law and policy, friend of the IFG. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for inviting me along. I'd like to say at the beginning what wonderful work the IFG has done throughout Brexit. It has been the best single uh, group for analysing all the issues and so I'm really delighted to have been invited along to this podcast. Thank you and I didn't invite you for the free ad but very <laughs> delighted to have it. Let me ask you in turn, have you found the election campaign has given you as much to talk about as the autumn? Well the problem with an election campaign for somebody who's interested in law and policy is there's very little substance to get your teeth into because in their nature, election campaigns will tend to be superficial. Uh, but there have been some interesting developments. Uh, obviously, somebody like me who's interested in political messes, very much looking forward to seeing what the result will be. Uh, that is a highlight of every election or referendum vote is, oh dear, the moment afterwards when the result comes in. And at the moment, Nobody knows what the result's Nobody going to knows, be. Nobody knows, and that's if there is a clear result. And maybe we'll pick that up when it, when it happens. Absolutely. Yeah. OK, lo loads to talk about. Maddie, let me, let me come to you. What was the most striking point of the week for you? So what I thought was most interesting, or particularly more recently, is the suggestion from the Lib Dems that they would be willing to support or at least sort of uh, abstain on a Queen's speech for either of the two main political parties, so whether that would be a Labour, possible Labour government or a Conservative government. So it does seem like if we do not get a, a sort of outright majority in the next election, a referendum possibly looks more likely. I'm sure you're right about this. This is a big change, isn't it? 
It, I think it is from their point of view. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about what the other two parties, uh, SNP and Lib Dems in particular, might do if we're talking about minority government and having to get the support from other parties. This is a Labour-led thing. Yeah, and whether or not... a coalition, they, but... Yeah. yeah, exactly. Ruling out coalition at this stage. Parties always rule out coalition before it happens. Um, but also whether or not they'd get into some kind of confidence and supply relationship. And if not that then it's about, OK, can you get through a Queen's speech as a minority government? So this is a, a quite significant um, revelation from them. Well, change of position, isn't it? I mean, because Joe Swinson, the Liberal leader, was, was saying, look, I'm not, I'm not going to put Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street. And now it looks like, as you said, the beginnings of a change. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, at the start of the campaign that, yeah, the Lib Dems were very, very clear that they were not going to sort of say now that they would be willing to support either um, either sort of Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn in Downing Street. But but it does seem like particularly looking at how they have fared in the campaign so far, that actually... It you mean fairly badly? Yeah, they're sort of they're much, they are low down in the polls. And so I think that it, it seems like at this stage what they're saying is their big priority is getting another referendum on Brexit, getting a people's vote, as they call it. Well, the problem about a referendum from looking at it from a law and policy point of view is how are you going to be able to legislate for a referendum before any of the current dates of significance with Brexit, i.e. Uh, before the end of January, uh, for when the next time we're supposed to be leaving, or by the end of the year, if we're talking about uh, tying it to the other date which is in play. It took... Over a year for the last referendum piece of legislation to go through Parliament. Last time, there were all sorts of problems with the secondary legislation, especially over things like voter registration and election expenses. So we'd need to do a better job this time. And to do all of that at speed, I, I, I can understand the political imperatives, but looking at it logistically, when would we have that referendum? And how, how, what would be the path of events which would lead to us having a referendum whilst we're still a member of the European Union? This is European a really Union? interesting point. I mean, what's the minimum time it could take to get a referendum through, to get the legislation through and then have this referendum? Well, you, you guys are in a better position than I am to actually give a view on that. But and if last you have year, given a, a, a view on it, which is yeah. to, do, to, to do all this in six months is very tight. I, I, I think, obviously, you can legislate in a day if necessary on anything. But... Uh, all the secondary legislation which needs to be got right this time, because last time, part of the reason why we have the election expenses problems, which are still ongoing three, three odd years later, is because the legislation on expenses was quite loose and it would be neat, we would need to look at that properly again. But Otherwise exactly, we'd have the what, same what problems. What parties are allowed to spend? Well, the, the, the campaign organisations or whether we would have designated campaign organisations this time, whether that was a good idea or not. Mm. What would be... The question. Yeah, I mean, you could you could argue that if it was a Conservative government sort of overseeing a referendum, then at least now we do know what the deal that they are looking for is. Um, we have now had sight of the Labour manifesto. There's, you know, there's some things in there that they're saying, you know, they want to stay in a customs union. They want to have a close alignment with the single market. Not really clear what exactly that looks like and whether that's even negotiable with the EU. So I do think the challenge of, um, as David has said, the challenge of holding a referendum in a very 
very tight time frame is actually making sure that both sides of the campaign will know what exactly they're campaigning for when they go into that process. But I wanted us uh, then to, to, to turn after this really autumn, long autumn of talking about many of these constitutional uh, wrangles and loose ends, if you like, to look at whether the election is going to resolve any of these things, any of these constitutional points that we have all spent a long time talking about. Kath, what do you reckon? Well, there's one big constitutional issue that could be resolved, which is anything to do with minority government. Obviously, if there's a majority returned, then a lot of the things that we've been talking about in terms of Parliament and the way in which Backbench has been able to get hold of the agenda, um, you know, the d- relationship with the Speaker, all of these sorts of things start to become very different under a majority government, The you know, the relationship between the executive and the legislature, all of that kind of stuff. But no, first of all, though, we've got to get through the election result. And if there's no clear result, then we're into all sorts of questions. If, about, if we're into a hung parliament again. Yeah, then we're into all sorts of questions about, you know, role of the Queen in terms of appointment of Prime Minister, who can form a government, how does that happen? You know, what is the role of the civil service in all of that? And given the atmosphere, especially in these last sort of few months, uh, that poses a lot of sort of potential areas of controversy. So minority government, all those things still dangling. But what are the things that, that would still be dangling, the kind of questions we got about our constitution that would still be there, that have been raised by all this, uh, you know, arguing about Brexit and are still there for us to answer? Well, you know, we've got to look at this from a sort of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy point of view. You can only <laughs> say the, ele- you can only, you can only the election is going to be resolving constitutional issues if you know what the constitutional issues are, which the general election is capable of resolving. Yeah. And you can do a good analysis of the current situation of, of, of where the UK is with Article 50, with its... Uh, and and not see the general election as anything other than just a a distraction, something which we're doing instead of what we should be doing. Uh, if we had spent two months looking at the withdrawal agreement properly, which still has not been looked at properly by Parliament, it still has not got past second reading. You've got, you got a fleeting glimpse of it and then whisked away by the part- Prime Minister's decision to have an election. There's- whole parts of the withdrawal agreement which are problematic and need to be properly scrutinised. Uh, like like what? Like, for example, the powers of the Joint Committee between the UK and the EU. This will be effectively a sovereign body with no democratic account, direct, direct democratic accountability, which will be able to make decisions which will have the force of law. And if you look at the withdrawal agreement properly and fully, you'll spot that there's not even a duty on it to actually publish what it's doing. You have all sorts of problems in the withdrawal agreement which haven't been properly looked at because we still are doing everything we can other than looking at what the withdrawal agreement says. It's like going round and tidying up instead of actually doing something to a deadline. And this was one of the problems, uh, certainly, of trying to rush through the withdrawal agreements uh, just before we ended up having an election instead, but also if we're talking about coming back and trying to do it rapidly over the Christmas period and then into January, is that not just how much time does the Commons have to do on this, how much time the Lords have to do on this, but also select committees. They won't be up and running, will they, Maddie? Yeah, no, exactly. So it takes it takes time for select committees to get up and running in a new parliament. And one of the sort of key parts of the pro- passage of legislation is, you know, select committees being able to take evidence from external experts to report on the contents of legislation. So we did see, just before dissolution, the Constitution Committee in the House of Lords did publish, they sort of rushed to publish a quite short report um, flagging some of the key constitutional concerns within the withdrawal agreement 
government bill. These kind of things that David was just talking about. Exactly. And I think, I mean, the Joint Committee, I think, is a really good example where it's going to be taking some quite important decisions, in particular about how the Northern Ireland Protocol will actually function. And there's no obligation on the Joint Committee to report to Parliament. We don't even know who's going to be in the Joint Committee from the UK or the EU side. So there are some really, really big questions. And actually, if you don't have, you know, select committees, I mean, it's one way for experts to feed into this process. It's also... And for to get it out in public as well. Yeah, exactly. And and to raise these issues, and as I say, to sort of to make recommendations on what they think should be done to improve um, the legislation. So although at least the bill has now been published, we have had more time to look at it. I've got a printed out copy on my desk. <laughs> um, but but actually, in terms of the sort of everything that goes on around the passage of legislation, because the fact that Parliament is no longer there, it's been dissolved, we can't have some of that sort of ticking over of process to inform the scrutiny and the debate around it. So as a, as a parliamentary geek, Maddie, how long <laughs> would it take a hung Parliament to sort out who's sitting on what select committee? It's a really good question, actually. I mean... I think that in 2017 they managed to... It it took them a couple of months, I think. It was September that they actually got everything up and running again. Um, But it it could take quite a long time because they're going to have to to agree, basically, the the makeup of select committees because select committees are there to reflect the balance of the numbers in the House of of Commons. So normally if you've got a majority government, then the government um, can have a majority on certain select committees. So it it could be perfectly possible that after the 12 December election select committees will not be in place sufficiently quickly to be able to have reported properly on the withdrawal bill. I think that that is definitely a concern. I mean, what I would say is that if we're into a hung parliament, there are probably bigger questions than even yeah. whether they're going to be able to get the bill through anyway. So we're back, to, slightly, some the, we're back some, to some of the old questions of exactly. the autumn about who has the upper hand. So who's in number 10 is a big question. And do they have the numbers in parliament? And what is quite interesting, I think, is that looking at the, the who has been standing down in terms of MPs, quite a few of the Labour leavers who actually supported the deal going through back in October, October are no longer running in this election. So even if you end up with a Conservative minority government, they might not actually have the numbers they can rely on that they were able to in October at second reading of the withdrawal agreement bill. They might not have the numbers there. So actually, whether or not select committees are up and running potentially becomes um, not as important because they're like there's a bigger question about what they do before the 31st of January. And do you think the role of the monarchy is in play in all this? It's flickered through the autumn debate about whether the Queen was going to be you know, dragged into politics, is always the, the, the phrase used. And um, they've been featuring in the news this week, not for reasons of their choice with Prince Andrew and, and so on. But there obviously is a rising debate about what the role of the monarch is. Well, there's a fascinating paragraph in the Miller II judgment of the Supreme Court about the effect of, of the monarchy being out of politics. Miller II, of you know, as as we know, is about the uh, prorogation of Parliament. Whether it was within the Prime Minister's power to advise the monarch to prorogue Parliament for five weeks, the court found that the Prime Minister did not have that legal power to do that. That's the headline of the case. But in that judgment, it says, in a unanimous judgment, the Queen had to follow the advice of the Prime Minister. Really, had to. Had to. Yeah. The, the, the monarch had no discretion and followed it. This is thereby the Prime Minister exercising a power on behalf of the Crown. The Prime Minister therefore has to exercise that power in the public interest with regard to the interests of the Constitution. Can't do it selfishly just for party advantage. As, 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 as Kath uh, would also say, I think... 
the role of prime minister is woefully underconceptualized. Mm. Uh, this is a really interesting point mm. uh, in in legislation until the early 20th century, it didn't even exist in legislation. It was the 1870s, the Israeli turned heads by signing something, the Treaty of, of, of Berlin, Prime Minister. It was, no, 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 that doesn't really exist. Now, the Supreme Court has said certain decisions by the Prime Minister when exercising the power on behalf of the Crown means that the Prime Minister has to basically have regard to more than just their own party interests. And so really this, this protected the, 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 the monarchy in a way. It made clear what the powers were, 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 how the Prime Minister was acting and constrained in a way, or clarified the role of the Prime Minister. Yeah, and, uh, and because there's always this question, though, we can't bring the Crown into politics, so what? OK, we can't bring the Crown into politics. And now the Supreme Court is saying, well, if we can't bring the Crown into politics, then the Prime Minister has these extra constitutional burdens to fulfil when exercising their power. And that's a fascinating initiative by a, a unanimous Supreme Court. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing is, in all of this, it's... OK, there are some powers where, over the course, especially of the last sort of century, century and a half, we have seen the erosion of any discretionary powers by the monarch. Um, but the, the important thing, though, is whether or not there are still some that she gets to exert on her own and the Prime Minister perhaps can offer lowercase advice, but it isn't binding on her. Prorogation was actually one that we, and before Fixed Term Parliaments Act, giving a dissolution as well. These were ones that we thought she had a degree of discretion. And the other important one, I keep coming back to it, is appointment of prime minister. You know, if a prime minister resigns, who then says, if there's kind of uncertainty about it, who then says who the next prime minister should be? Uh, how much discretion does she get of her own volition to decide that? And that's that's fundamental to our constitution, to the role of the monarchy, and also to who the hell is the prime minister possibly after this election. So it's a that's biggie. Because the, the palace, as we understand it, really wants to keep the monarchy out of politics. Yeah, They're yeah. very, very conscious, very alert at the moment about what their future and what their future public support might look like. That's probably why they moved as quickly as they did over the, uh, yeah. the Prince Andrew um, debate this this week and got him to step back from public life. And so they've, they've really got um, a, a lot of advisors looking on this question of how to keep their role clear. Yeah, but it's a big problem because, um, in a sense, she's the referee. She's the constitutional backstop. Um, and on some things where you do actually need her to make or, you know, the role to make some kind of judgment about what is the proper course of action, like if there is a prorogation that's requested that is, you know, beyond the pale, or if she's got to decide who the Prime Minister is or something like that. Um, you need that role. And if it's not her the courts will step in. And that leads us back to this thing of, are we codifying anyway piecemeal and effectively taking the monarch out of it? And she just becomes this kind of signer of documents and so forth and isn't playing any kind of meaningful role in all of that. But it's a big contradiction because as soon as she does play any role like that, she undermines her position. So that's a, it's it's a, hard a really one. good way of putting it. Well, just possibly if there's a clear result to the election, she may be spared this um, yeah. this this very active role that they are not looking forward to. now going to take a break with our regular item speed data with Gavin Freegard. Every week our 
Baron of the Bar Chart, Gavin. Is that better than than uh, Prin- <laughs> Prince of the Pie Chart? Prince of the Pie Chart. Baron yeah. of the Bar Charts is much better. Thank <laughs> you. Well, they're both terrible. They're both terrible. Every week, Gavin comes in to stun us with his stats and maybe his sonification, putting his charts into sound. I'm not going to call it music. Gavin, what's your big number this week? Well, my number of the week this week is 120. Um, so it's nothing to do with the darts, although the World Championship does start um, on Election Day, would you believe? Um, 120 is actually 120 days, which is how long George Canning was Prime Minister for back in 1827. And Boris Johnson? Well, exactly. 1827. We're nothing if not topical here on Inside Briefing. Um, So just this week, Boris Johnson has overtaken that number. So whatever happens in the general election in a few weeks' time, he will not become Britain's shortest-serving Prime Minister. So let me subject you to prime ministerial tenure, um, not soprano, alto or bass. This is uh, what it will sound like. The Obviously, the longer serving prime ministers will come in earlier and then the shorter serving ones will come in later. So let's have a listen. So that's Walpole. This is Pitt. Liverpool. Thatcher, Blair, Major and Cameron, May and Brown, and that tiny bit right at the end was Boris Johnson. If I ever wondered what the psychic boom at the end of Watchmen sounded like, it would be like that. That was quite. That was quite something. Was, I think I've, I've stunned you into silence for, for once. <laughs> for once, no. For many, yeah. Thing about George Canning and Boris Johnson is one was a genuine liberal reformer, one of the greatest foreign secretaries we ever had, who cut off that greatest potential, mm. and the other ones. Boris Johnson. And Canning often known as the lost Prime Minister. Um, oh, yes. And famously shot in a duel in 1809 by Lord Castlereagh, would you believe? Why yes. is he known as the lost Prime Minister? Because it was such a short tenure and for okay. all the reasons Canning David w- went into... C- Canning was going to be one of the great Prime Ministers. He waited ages and ages for it. Okay. Uh, and by the time he finally got there, he then lasted weeks and then died. How long does Boris Johnson have to last before he overtakes the next one? So the next uh, key date is the 14th of December, when uh, Boris Johnson will equal Viscount Godrich. Mm. Um, You may also know Godrich um, through his other names, uh, Frederick Robinson and the Earl of Ripon. Two interesting facts about Godrich. One, he's the only Prime Minister never to have faced Parliament during his term. And the second is that along with Liverpool and Canning, he was one of three Prime Ministers in the calendar year 1827. If the 2019 election goes against Boris Johnson, 2019 could become the ninth calendar year in British history where we have three or more Prime Ministers. Well, you, you said the 14th, well, so something so for 14, Boris. Two, two days after two the days election. Two days after the election, something extra. I don't think that will be on his mind if he's won or if he's lost, but something for, that we can look forward to. And Gavin, when, thanks very much. And when Goderick went to the king to put his resignation in, he collapsed in tears and the king had to offer an handkerchief to him. <laughs> and he became known as the blubberer. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, we're all recovering from Gavin's sounds. Um, it's big idea time. What do Dexu, Dec... DIT and DIFID have in common. They're all departments, or in one case, an ex-department, which were formed by a new Prime Minister's desire to reshape Whitehall. It might be very good news for whichever minister gets the brand new title, 
but is it really a smart way to do politics and make policy? We have just the person to ask. Tim Durrant, an associate director at the IFG, has just published a report into machinery of government changes. Hi, Tim. Hello. Hi. Tell us what machinery of government means and what your big idea is for this week. So machinery of government is the the kind of whitehall jargon for the process of creating and merging government departments. Um, as you said, you know, prime ministers like to announce a new department to show that they're taking an issue seriously. It's, it gets good headlines. Uh, and we've already seen a few um, ideas for new departments in manifestos. But what we looked at in our paper was how this actually plays out, um, the benefits, if, if those benefits are actually achieved, and the problems that come up along the way with creating those departments. And Labour's given us a couple of ideas that they want. What, what have they said? So Labour have said in their manifesto that they would like to create a department for housing, um, a department for women and equalities, uh, so that it would bump up the role of Minister for Women and Equalities to a full cabinet-level role, uh, and also a Ministry for Employment Rights. Uh, so picking up some of their big uh, election themes there. So three new departments. And what, what, what are they trying to do with this? I think a lot of this, and this is one of the, the things we caution against in our paper, is about signalling. It's about showing to, to people that this is an issue we care about and we're taking it so seriously. So we really, really mean it. Exactly. And so here's a brand new department. Exactly. And so, you know, again, look at other parties. The Greens suggested a new department for the Green New Deal. So, you know, they care about climate change and we are taking this seriously. We are going to create a department and a Secretary of State to deal with what we think are the important issues and what we think the population think are the important issues. But there's the, you've got to start breaking down what it would actually mean because obviously women and equalities, that's currently a brief held by another cabinet minister. It has a small unit. So you'd be adding jobs, creating a whole new department, need the infrastructure for that. Housing sits in a current department, doesn't it? So it'd be about taking that particular brief out of it. But employment rights, that's a bit complicated, isn't it? Because, I mean, is that all in work and pensions? Where does that sit and no, what would that mean? Exactly. So a lot of these policy issues are already dealt with by one or more government departments. And unless there is something more to the idea of a new government department other than a kind of shiny new name, it's not clear exactly what they, they will be doing. What will those ministers actually be changing? Hmm. And what will the civil servants who work for them actually spend their day to day doing? And that's where you get into problems where if it's just, you know, a... Uh, a kind of rebrand in order to get good headlines or, or sort of show that you're doing something, uh, that doesn't actually mean that anything changes. And what happens day one after the election? So you've got a brand new minister, the new prime minister says, right, here's your, here's, you've got a brand new department, off you go. Uh, where? Uh, God new, new building? Yeah. God save us from these pop-up departments. Yeah. <laughs> Part well, of the problem after Brexit was that there were three departments which had a certain centre of gravity which could have taken things forward. Treasury, Foreign Office and also Cabinet Office, which up to that point had uh, coordinated a great deal of EU work. And Letwin was there at the time, if memory serves, as, as, as Minister. Yeah. There's a few famous old departments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we lost weeks, months with these basically virtual departments. Dexu was effectively a bunch of people sitting around a table in Starbucks and Victoria Street for a good amount of time. And the problem is, is with these small departments, these pop-up departments, they don't have a great deal of institutional weight within Whitehall. I was a government lawyer at an, a, a wonderful idea called the Office of Government Commerce, which was supposedly going to be a, quote, centre of excellence, unquote, for, for governments dealing with, with uh, private sector. The problem was is that it had no mandatory power, it just sat there, it had persuasive power, but essentially it was not a department, it was a manifestation of a press release. 
And the problem with a lot of these pop-up departments is that they are just manifestations of press releases. And sometimes they ignore the underlying legal reality. Tony Blair thought he could, at a stroke, abolish the Lord Chancellor's department. And it was then pointed out that, no, you actually couldn't, because there's a whole range of problematic legal stuff about the role of the Constitution, the Lord Chancellor, the keeping of the Great Seal, the whole lot of it. And so he was forced at the last moment to actually keep a department because he just had this really shallow understanding of, oh, let's issue a press release and have a new government department. And we've had, I mean, real issues with uh, Dexu, as you say, David, trying to have authority within the, the Brexit process and Department of International Trade trying to do trade deals when it's almost too early in, in the mm. process. We argued, didn't we, against We did. We said it, it would be more sensible to just keep it in the Cabinet Office and have a special unit. But, I mean, this is the interesting thing. We're talking about all the negative ones. Tim, have you got some examples? of good machinery of government changes. Surely there must be some. So I think what what we found was, you know, where there's a clear idea for what that department is going to do. So the example that people talk about that has stood the test of time is work and pensions, DWP. So obviously it's controversial at the moment. Universal credit is a big issue. But in terms of the functioning of the department, what it did, uh, it was created in 2001 after, after Labour uh, were returned in that election. Um, what it did was brought together... Um, pensions and kind of support for um, the disabled and those who weren't able to Mm. work from the Department of Social Security and all of the kind of roots back into work from what was then the Department for Education and Employment. So it brought together the whole kind of And this was the idea behind it. Exactly. It was like, you know, a one-stop shop for social security and that kind of, you know, safety net benefits structure. Mm. Uh, And that made it easy for people to access them. You know, there was sort of clear branding. There was very easy. You knew where you needed to go. And the idea was it would help people who come out of work, find ways back into work. And then if they couldn't for whatever reason, illness or old age or whatever, then they have the other set of um, arrangements in the same place. It was incredibly expensive, though, wasn't it? I mean, you've done a chart of of, of what cost what over the years. And this one... Is way at the yes. This one, is, this one is. How, how much was it? So we have previously estimated this one cost uh, 173 million pounds just in the first year, and that's made up of various different aspects. The large chunk of that, about 140 million, is because in bringing together two departments, uh, the Department of Social Security and Education and Employment were on very different pay scales. So those civil servants who won, who were on the lower pay scale had to be brought up to the level. It didn't go the other way around. Colleagues, yeah. it doesn't go the other way around very often, uh, which means you know there's a big. big big one-off hit in that first year and bringing everyone up to the same scale. But then there's also the kind of the practical costs of, you know, rebranding buildings, finding everyone uh, desks, uh, getting, you know, emails on the same systems and that kind of thing. Longer term, we also think, and it's quite difficult to quantify this, but we also think there is a productivity hit because any organisational change is disruptive. You know, people take time to get used to just being in a new building, having new colleagues, uncertainty about what their roles are, how much political sort of uh, confidence there is in the new department affects how people feel about it. I guess and, you could say that they get energised and that might be a, a benefit, but I, I think a lot of studies you found say there is a hit, isn't it? Absolutely. What, so what, I think what kind of in, in In sort of general management literature, which mainly looks at the private sector, uh, there isn't specific stuff looking at government departments, but they have found around a sort of 20% hit to productivity to around 20% of employees. That is obviously, that means a 4% hit to the overall organisation. That's a very low 
conservative estimate. So, you know, if it, you can easily mm. imagine it being larger than that. But that is still a very significant cost. Um, and, uh, you know, and that will continue for a number of years. And most people we spoke to said, particularly when there's a big change like the DWP creation, that hit takes a couple of years to work its way through the system. Mm. So if you are creating, as David said, a kind of pop-up department to deal with a big priority issue, by the time it's actually running at capacity, you're 24 months down the line and, and the issue has gone away or been solved by something else or, or has got worse because you've been spending time creating the department rather than dealing with so, it. So, Tim, I was going to ask, I mean, in terms of those pop-up departments, are there advantages then in, in getting rid of those? And so Dexu, mm. obviously, we've already talked about, but IFG always said that Dexu shouldn't have been established to start with. Should we be getting rid of Dexu then immediately? Is that Should that be a priority? I think it's really They're really going to think we've got it in for them. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a really interesting question because if... If your priority is, if, if it's a Labour government and they want to hold a referendum, or if it's a Conservative government and they want to get us out by the end of January, they need to focus on those things. They don't need to focus on moving things around Whitehall. So my advice, if either if the next Prime Minister came to me, I would say, don't get rid of Dexter immediately. Think about what you want you sort of the immediate resolution, immediate next steps on the Brexit process to be. And then once you've achieved that, then think about what Dex used to do because cause, it's hard work. Yeah, and also because there's a lot of institutional memory there now, now that they now, have created yeah. it. And that's yeah. often the problem when you are merging departments, yeah. when they were bringing together employment and education in the like a decade beforehand in the early uh, 1990s, that was one of the things they had to think about was where the institutional memory lay for different parts of the system yeah. and how they would bring teams together to be able to work together and if there's a different culture and, yeah. you know, different sort of history to the departments, how they would work together. So yeah. that, that kind of institutional and, memory is really important. And there's also an accountability lag. Yeah. Mm. Because Absolutely. it took ages for the DEXU Select Committee yeah. to get it sat together once DEXU was created. And obviously there are things like National Audit Office and we'll need new people, new desks, whatever, to actually, people at desks, to, to, to follow particular departments. So not only is there a lag in productivity, there's a, a lag in being able to hold them properly to account within Parliament or through the checks and balances which are existing within the Constitution. That's a really good point. Yeah. So, t Tim, what would you be your top tips? The new Prime Minister comes in and you're going to e edge your way up to them and offer this deeply technocratic advice <laughs> at the point where when, when he Phone probably, probably he is, 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 is wanting to make a big speech on Downing Street. What would you say? So I think the, the key point, the sort of overarching uh, recommendation is know why you're doing it. So... If it's just a rebrand or a kind of glossy headline, that's not good enough. If you have identified a problem that you want to solve and you have clear uh, views on what the ministers of that department, what the officials of that department are going to be doing, then that makes sense. Go ahead. But it's really about knowing what the objectives are. And then secondary is is making making people aware that it will take time to get up and running and it will cost money. And if you're not prepared to wait or to invest money, then this is the wrong decision. Form, form has to follow function. You've got exactly. to work out what you want to do and then work backwards from that to yeah. what is the best institutional framework to do that. Yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Well, Tim and the rest of you, we'll look forward to you repeating all this in the first week of the new Prime Minister. Thank you. What's it like to be in charge of the civil service during a general election campaign? Gus O'Donnell, Cabinet Secretary from 2005 to 2011, spoke to Kath Haddon about the challenges he faced and the challenges facing the civil service today. Gus, you were Cabinet Secretary for the 2010 election. We had the aftermath of the financial crisis, uh, Ash Cloud uh, and the Greek uh, financial crisis going on at the time. 
and a very complicated result. How do you think it compares to now? Yeah. I think uh, at the time it was difficult because we hadn't had a, a coalition government since the Second World War. Uh, we had done quite a lot of planning, so we'd done a lot of scenario planning. We had rightly, I think, ignored the polls and just said, what are the various options? It's not that we actually had sensible answers to all of the different options, but we had at least tried them out once. I think all in all, my memory of it was a period where we did some sensible planning and the politicians behaved extremely well, in line with the way I'd hope for them to play. This time round, of course, um, again, different sets of options, different kinds of players. Um, you would hope they would do well. I'd be, um, you know, there are signs that that will be more difficult this time, that their, their adherence to some of the uh, precedents and constitutional principles not as strong as possibly they were for Gordon Brown, David Cameron and Nick Clegg. And how hard is it for civil servants when they hear promises coming out of the campaign pledge, whether it's immovable Brexit deadlines, you know, or timescales for delivering policy, that they know are probably a little bit unrealistic? Is it tough for them to contemplate what happens next? Yes, it's extremely tough, which is why you prepare those incoming briefs which say, you promised this, do you realise that actually we can't deliver on that within the timescale that you said? Or actually, if you want to achieve the objective behind that promise, there are better ways of doing it. You know, all of those things you need to confront them with very early on. And of course, that's difficult because ministers are coming in thinking, I'm looking for a can-do civil service. And if all they get is people saying, well, actually, we can't do what you promised, there's a question of do they lose faith in you? Do they lose trust? So you, you need to, at the same time, build the trust but also say, look, if, if I don't tell you this now, you're going to have a train crash three, six months, a year down the road because your promises will be undelivered. And better now, at the height of your power post-election, to actually recalibrate some of those. You were a big part of the development of the Cabinet Manual, uh, a guide to some of our constitution. But do you think we are going to need more than that now? Are we moving towards codification? Yes, I think we are. And uh, I think the cabinet manual was a first step. Uh, it was difficult. There were lots of things like war powers, for example, that were in earlier versions that actually eventually didn't make it into the final uh, draft. So I regard it as the first step and I would love for future cabinets to build on it and fill in lots of gaps. And I always worried as an economist, I was kind of looking at these things that are precedents and the constitutional law and saying, well, that's a precedent. I was like, well, explain to me what constitutes a precedent and when does a precedent cease to be a precedent? When does it become a precedent if you've done it once or twice? Or, and can you break a precedent? What are the consequences? So I think all of those things, I would like us to go through and say, actually, there are some of these things which are so important that we should put them in law. And I think that's a really important part of it. You know, it's like... Constitutional Reform and Governance Act puts in law some really important things about the civil service and various other things. So I think we should do that and I think we should do this carefully and slowly. I think we should learn the lessons of Fixed Term Parliaments Act, which I think has many merry merits, but was drafted very quickly and I don't think 
you know, with the benefit of what we've learned since, there are lots of ways in which that could be amended or filled in to fill in different kinds of scenarios as opposed to the one that it was written for, which was the Lib Dems being very, very paranoid that the Conservatives would just cut and run. Um, turning to a wider question, there's, there's quite a lot of discussion at the moment about trust and honesty in politics. Do you think it's a new low for British politics at the moment? We've, we've certainly, some of the things have changed. And I think it's, this is not just about British politics. I think this is a global phenomenon partly related to social media and people's the proliferation of news outlets and tweeting and all the rest of it and various things which where falsehoods can kind of go around the world before anyone says actually that's not true um, so I think within that context uh, we still have had some issues where I think we've had politicians saying things which are just not true. And uh, you look at all the fact-check sites and the rest of them, um, you know, the proper ones, um, then you realise that things that I would have said should not be happening uh, are happening more and more. And I think that's, it's important that, that people call those out. So I think there's a really uh, big role for people at the Institute for Government, Institute of Fiscal Studies, to saying no, this is what the reality is. You know, these are the rules. These are the costings. You know, that's that's a very important role in our society now. Okay, and then lastly, you have previously welcomed prime ministers through the door of Number Ten. What advice would you give for the next prime minister or whoever becomes prime minister after the election? It's. I'd say first of all. It really does depend if it's an incumbent coming back or a new one because uh, you have to remember that when we talk about things that are stressful, uh, having a new job, moving house, right, and a new prime minister, that's what they do, and they do it all in one day. And, and then there's the issue of all of the policies that, and all of the nuclear targeting, the terrorists, you know, the stuff that's thrown at them because they are the prime minister. So... We should, you know, cut a little slack for Prime Ministers. This is a very difficult job, and a lot is thrown at them straight away. So even if you've been in a job for a while, as in uh, Boris Johnson, uh, there's still a resetting. I think when you've come through a leadership election, as he has, and then a general election, I think there's a big issue for a new Prime Minister to unite his party, the ones who are not in favour of him, to, to get the party united, get the new party with the new MPs, and unite the country, because the country will have divided, but they will have spoken. If they've given you a mandate, then that's a really powerful and important thing for you, to use those things to try and develop policies that are good for everybody in the country. That's what I would be doing. So there's a bit of a reset and a bit of a, hopefully, a broadening out of policy to do things which have been on hold for the last four years. And that's it for this week's Inside Briefing. Before we head back into the home stretch of the election campaign, one more question for the panel. What should we look out for next week? Maddie? So what I'm, I'm hoping for next week is, um, once we've got all the manifestos, that there will be some proper discussion about what, what parties are planning to do, rather than just lots of sound bites to be shared on Twitter. I might be waiting on that one.
Well, we'll have the Conservative manifesto as well. Anyway, Kath? I think it was really interesting this week, uh, obviously the whole Prince Andrew thing, but also the way in which the media then followed that. And I I wonder whether actually or not they will stay focused on the campaign or whether what's going on in the US is going to start to The Prince Andrew interview really eclipsed the leaders' debate, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Not exactly what the palace was hoping, I think, but not what the leaders were hoping either. David? Well, I'm going to exercise my prerogative power and not have it for next week, but look forward to next year. You are our guest. Uh, And the UK came very close to a constitutional crisis in the year just gone. Very close. But we didn't have one. It just worked somehow some way in the end. But I think it's complacent to assume that we are now beyond having constitutional crises over Brexit. I think we may well still have one, depending on the general election result uh, in respect of our relationship uh, on with uh, Ireland and Scotland and the Good Friday Agreement and devolution and a whole range of things. There are issues still there which can may not be resolved easily. I'm completely with you. I think the devolution question is going to be one of the big ones for next year. Thank you all and thank you everyone for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to Inside Briefing on Apple Podcasts, Acast or your favourite podcast app. And remember, you can stream us on Spotify too. If you have time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and help us keep challenging for that number one slot in the government chart, that would be wonderful. We'll be back next weekend for more analysis of what makes government work or not. In the meantime, do visit us at instituteforgovernment.org.uk where you can find out more on what we've discussed today and our other work. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. We'll see you next week.